0: Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast, episode 124. Uh, Please pardon my my pipes. I'm getting over a cold and a little bit of the the Patriot celebration over the weekend. But uh, I'm excited to bring you this podcast. I know I talk frequently about how much I enjoy doing these podcasts, and I'll tell you why. When I was uh, writing for magazines, I really would enjoy the interviews very much, talking to very interesting people. And the writing, while it's rewarding, is very challenging. Um, and it was uh, fun to do and fun to sort of solve those puzzles every day, every week, every month, depending upon the frequency of the publication. But the interviews were really what I uh, enjoyed the most. So this, these podcasts, as I've explained, really allow me to engage with those same interesting people and not have to do the writing after. It's a it's a real treat. And uh, today is one of those days where I really did enjoy the conversation with Dr. James Eady of Sante Ventures. But I also left, uh, hung up the phone or or disconnected the computer more accurately, wishing we had talked about more. Sante Ventures has had an incredible uh, year. They've sold three of their companies. And uh, the purchase price for the three companies probably come close to a billion dollars or the potential for a billion dollars with earnouts and such. If you add it all up, we know of two of the prices. They uh, that would add up with our notes to uh, probably close to eight hundred thousand, eight hundred million dollars. And uh, let's assume that the undisclosed uh, company sold for at least that. So, this is uh, a company that's a firm that's making some real, uh, some real noise, enjoying some real success, and they're doing it while investing in very, very early stage companies. This is off the napkin kind of stuff. So, I talked with uh, James about Sante's approach. And, uh, and how they're getting it done. And I'm thrilled to, uh, to tell you that James Edie will be a panelist at the MedTech Conference, which is taking place on May 30th in Minneapolis. He will be, uh, fittingly, on our early stage panel to talk about launching MedTech companies in this environment. I invite you to go to medtechconference.com to check out the agenda. It will be a great day, or a day plus, actually, because we are going to have a terrific opening reception the night before to, to provide even more networking for you. So go to medtechconference.com, review the agenda, and I invite you to uh to register. The discounted rate I was talking about the last podcast has expired, but you can still get in for uh for a, at a great savings. And if you use the MedTech talk code, which we have extended, you will get in for under a thousand dollars. Uh this conference is uh is definitely worth more than that. And most of our attendees, I think, will will pay full price. They tend to register toward the end. But we are inviting you to, to register early. We had a terrific January, one of the best since I've been here. And I'm really looking forward to a, looking forward to having a packed ballroom at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. So please don't wait. Go to medtechconference.com, check out the agenda, and register to attend. Again, it's happening on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. Now let's get into this conversation with Dr. James Eady of Sante Ventures. James, thanks for joining us. Well, Tom, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I typically uh, ask people about their uh, their entries into into MedTech, and uh, you've uh, you've taken an interesting path. I'd like to uh, understand first uh, where you grew up. When we were talking off the line, you mentioned you are uh, a Patriots fan, and by by the time people hear this, uh, the Patriots have either won or lost. So I don't want to dwell too much on that fact. But uh, where does your story begin? So Tom, I grew up in uh, upstate New York, just outside of
1: Albany, New York, uh, and then. Uh, Headed off to Michigan for an undergraduate degree in engineering, did a biomedical engineering undergrad, and uh, was fortunate enough to have an Air Force scholarship where I was able to finance my schooling, and so did ROTC at that time, and then really got hooked by not just the mechanics. The engineering, but really the the interface of science and biology and engineering, and uh, started spending a lot of time looking at orthopedic biomechanics, and mm-hmm. really really thought for a while I was going to become an MD PhD uh, sort of bench researcher, and so I actually went off to Boston after my undergrad to do med school at a combined program at Harvard MIT called the HST or Health Science and Technology Program, and so that brought me to Boston, and uh, I ended up spending nine years in Boston. I uh, ended up doing five years sort of a research focused medical school. Did not do the PhD fortunately because once I got into the clinics during med school, I, I really found that while I loved the science and what was going on, I, I couldn't see myself writing grants. And mm. I was really taken by by patient care, you know, the interface of, of taking science and then being there at the bedside and trying to help. And so I I was naturally drawn to the clinical. Realm. And so I entered uh, residency at Mass General in the Brigham and did a, a four year program in emergency medicine, which really was a perfect place for me. It was sort of, uh, I guess, somebody with a, a short attention span. It allowed me to <laughs> to go from trauma to OB to pediatrics, uh, chest pain, old, young. It's uh, sort of a jack of all trades. And at the time in Boston, it was a new program. So it was really exciting to see the field growing and, and to. To really touch on many areas in medicine, uh, which I think later on in life and sort of fast forward to a venture world has has served me well, that sort of exposure.
0: It's not a biodesign program, but was it something that was was really focused on medicine and engineering with an eye on innovation? Was that your your interest? So so the, the med school program was really focused on combination of science and engineering
1: as it applies to the clinical world. And and so that. That brought together some of the great faculty from MIT and Harvard to focus on it. Given the innovative nature that sits there at MIT and Harvard, if you look back today at many of the people in venture and in industry that have a medical background, many have come through through that program. There's a much higher percent probably from that program uh, that have ended up in venture or business development, uh, many of them are running companies, than perhaps just a, just a traditional uh, pathway through But it it was not designed to, you know, to 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 create industry focused people. It it was really, you know, designed for hardcore science bench researchers. But but many of us have 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 found that the translational aspect of what we do uh, on the commercial side and for for me on the venture side is
0: is what we find it most rewarding. And then uh, what happened after uh, after MGH, which is my family's hospital, by the way, always been an MGH family. (laughs) uh, where where did you go from there? Yeah. So I, uh, was fortunate enough to, you know, have my nine years there in
1: Boston. And at that point, this was 2004. And, uh, uncle Sam said, you know, it was time that I (laughs) come back onto active duty. I was commissioned officer, but was on a long educational delay to get my, you know, MD and residency training. And so in 2004, I left Boston for San Antonio to join the faculty at Wilford Hall Medical Center. Wilford Hall at the time was the Air Force's preeminent uh, health system or health academic uh, center. It was a level one trauma center. And so I came on with a large residency program. And, and you know, if you were to sort of sit in it day in and day out, it looked very similar to being on fac- junior academic faculty at many other uh universities except I just, you know, I came into work in a uniformer and and then changed into scrubs. Uh and and then of course, you know, 2004 through I was there through the end of 2008 on uh, active duty was obviously a very busy time with the the two wars going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, uh I had two tours in Iraq, one as a critical care transport team where we we were sort of basically a flying ICU. We would take the patients directly from the ORs uh and you know, the and fly them uh, you know, hours after surgery, uh and we would put them on the back of a back of a cargo plane, that Thomas D seventeen that had just landed. They'd sort of offload the equipment. We'd have helicopters and troops and everything come off, and then we'd reconfigure the the, the airplane. Uh, to be able to take care of patients. And so we would then, you know, take off usually three, four in the morning to avoid ground fire and uh, land into Ramstein Air Force Base in, in Germany and transfer the patients that we were we were caring for to a Launch a Medical Center. And the, those patients would, you know, frequently go straight to the ICU or straight to the OR for the next stage of surgery. And then those patients, you know, a day or two later would be by a similar team uh, would be brought back to the States and my team, we would, we would, you know, jump the next flight back to, to Iraq and then we'd be uh, situated there waiting for the next, uh, you know, when we would come up on the rotation. And my other tour, I was uh, the ch- chief of the the ER during the surge. It was back uh, 2007, 2008. And so we had, that was back when there was a lot of trauma, a lot of violence going on around, around Baghdad. And so that was a, it was a very busy time. Uh, but also a, a tremendously rewarding time to be able to be there and to, to care for all the patients, uh, that really needed needed our services.
0: Thanks for caring for our troops. That's, uh, that's quite a, I'm sure when you, you joined ROTC, I mean, it was a different world back then. So things did heat up right when you were, uh, most ready to serve. So that's, uh, an interesting bit of timing. What, uh, did you, did you serve both in, in Iraq? Did you also serve in Af- Afghanistan or only in Iraq? No, just two, two tours in Iraq and uh was there ever a uh a plan to to stay in the military or, or did you have sort of an idea as how you would translate this uh experience into into your next step in your career uh it's a perfect perfect segue tom
1: <laughs> you know, i
0: uh i really was
1: enjoying my military career uh i i found it to be incredibly satisfying It's a great group of people to work with both the patients uh the clinicians. Uh, and it really felt that you were doing really important work, but after my second tour in Iraq and my wife, who's an obstetrician, um, she was on you know Q two Q three call with a with a newborn. Basically, uh, she vetoed my <laughs> my my <laughs> thoughts of continuing in the military at the time. And so uh, at that point, we transitioned the family to Austin and had really. Fallen in love with the city of Austin and was, you know, looking to raise a, you know, having a young family and found that there's a lot of opportunities here, and so I took that opportunity to to do a couple of things. I continued working full time clinically, but as a civilian, so I, I hung up my uniform but continued to commute to San Antonio, which is about 100 miles, and so I was working full time in San Antonio. But, but I gave up all the administration. I had ended up as the chair of the department, which, in the military means I was just the last guy who you know who who forgot
0: to you know not raise his hand. Um, <laughs> Everyone <laughs> else stepped back and you and you stood still right that's that that yeah. is the military way right Especially where, <laughs> you know everybody's
1: deploying every six to twelve months they're someone who wants to take on administrative roles but i you know I was always the business. Focus person. I always did the billing and coding, and I had a couple of companies earlier on in my life, and I had always wanted to get my um, spend some time really focusing on getting some business education. And so this transition to Austin back in 2008 timeframe really worked out well. I could continue working clinically and just do bedside teaching, uh, which was perfect. And then I started the MBA program at the University of Texas. And I did the executive program. So that was, you know, a couple of days on the weekends uh, and then a lot of work overnight in the evenings, but I could work clinically. And so I did that. And during that process, as I was viral networking and trying to figure out what does a mid-career emergency physician doctor with an MBA or do. And what I realized was, A, nobody recruits that. You know, nobody's calling and asking for, you know, business school saying, Look, I'm looking for somebody, you know, in their late thirties or late forties with, you know, ten years worth of clinical experience who now happens to have a you know a you know a generic MBA. That's that's just not called for. So I was trying to figure out what I needed to do. And I also, you know, you know, thought, you know, maybe I could, you know, run a company. I'd always wanted to do that and I could get back to, you know, building something for um, the bedside, something I could take to the patients, and so I met the team at Sante Ventures, and in 2009 joined them as an EIR, and headed off looking at a lot of things in trauma critical care at the time. TBI was a big issue, and you know I started digging into that, and that's a, a you know, huge area of need, but also really complicated to do investing in. And uh, so I started looking at it, and what I took out of that was a couple of things. I, what I took out of it, one was I thought. Wow. You know, here in the venture world, they're spending all day looking at great technology that's at the that's at the bench and and talking with entrepreneurs who are trying to get it to the clinic. It's this translational work. And, and Sante was uh, was doing and continues to do early stage investing. So a lot of company creation work. And that resonated with me. Right. That was what called me early on to do. To do basic science research because I loved the science of it and thinking how it might apply, but it, but I had gone to the clinic because I really wanted to take care of patients. And what I found here was this perfect uh, coming together of high science, high technology, and yet it had to be directly applicable to the patient, and it has to work in the healthcare system that we have today. That I would just been you know I was practicing in, and so when I saw that, uh, that really lit a fire for me. The other piece of it is I realized that despite having an MD, you know, I knew nothing about the FDA. 510K was, you know, I couldn't spell and PMA sounded like some (laughs) sort of disease process. Uh, (laughs) I had no idea what CE mark was at the time. And so the thought that I could go off and actually, you know, seriously contribute and run or develop a med device type company, I you know, I quickly was brought back to earth that, you know, I was perfectly trained to be an ER doc. I had no training whatsoever in, you know, in running a med med device company. And that that was a skill set that takes decades of experience to learn and that I needed to learn that. So, you know, that that merger of of opportunities and then being at Sante, they were raising their second fund at the time. So they had to raise the first fund in 2007 Uh, And then this was 2000. They were raising their second fund. And so there was an opportunity for me to join them. And so I joined full time in 2000 because it was 2010, the end of 2010. And I continued to practice clinically for many years, but, you know, sort of Friday nights, Saturdays, I do a couple shifts a month uh, just because I still loved seeing patients and working with residents. But, you know, I, I became a full time venture capitalist and became the junior member of the team.
0: Hey, everyone, this is Tom. Pardon the interruption, but I want to let you know we'll be talking about late-stage investing at the MedTech Conference as well. We have a panel led by our co-chair, Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. She will be leading discussion with discussion uh, that includes investors and a CEO, the CEO of Procept Biorobotics. Together, Procept and Outset raised uh, $250 million from late-stage investors last year. So uh, they'll be part of a conversation with investors from Partners Fund. Wellington Management and Ally Bridge. So it'll be a great comprehensive discussion about closing on late stage capital. Go to medtechconference.com to check out the agenda and of course, to register. Now let's get back into this conversation. Well, I think Sante is just a fascinating firm because you folks have been able to maintain an early stage strategy at a time when others really uh may say they do early stage and may do a deal from time to time but it certainly is not uh not what they do primarily and, and sante seems to have found a way to do that and and to do that effectively i mean i don't want to alarm you james but uh, a lot of your companies are being acquired uh, <laughs> which uh which i know is the uh, the objective but i am just going over your record and uh it's pretty impressive so first let's talk about uh sante how do you folks view uh early stage investing and in, and in, uh, is there is there one definition of it or, or do you think Sante is looking at it a bit differently than us? I don't know, I, Tom,
1: I can't compare how others are looking at it, but I can give you our perspective. And that is that, you know, what we are trying to do is is to find, you know, really unique opportunities, addressing big market opportunities where there are near near term milestones for value creation. So that it either allows you to you know, be able to clearly fundraise. Uh, or uh, to exit the opportunities, and you know when we've you know we we've, we've looked at it from multiple ways. our own track record shows us that the the companies that we 've started have been our most successful we've We've looked at the the data and have mined that we 've got some you know great ex McKinsey and bankers who can you know pull magic out of excel and, and looked at it and you know what we continually see is that the greatest returns in venture, both biotech and, and med device, because we do about equal portions between the two, uh, that the Series A investment is where the vast majority of the return is. And so that's where we stayed into it. Uh, to do that, you, you've got to make sure, though, that you're in a company with a team that is going to be really capital efficient. And that's hard to find. It's hard to find opportunities that can do it. But when, but when you do find that opportunity, uh, it,
0: the oppor- then, 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 you, then you've got something you can really go after. So let's uh, drill down into specifics. Uh, one of the deals that uh, I wanted to talk to you about was was Millipede, which was acquired just recently. Uh, this is a deal where I've, I've read that uh, Sante was a primary investor, if not the only institutional investor. Can you uh, just give us a little bit of detail about the company, how you got into it, and, uh, and sort of how you helped to get to the point where it was uh, acquired by Boston Scientific?
1: I'd be happy to. So Millipede was uh, co-founded by really Randy Lashinsky and Dr. Steve Bowling, uh, we had uh, Dr. Steve Bowling had brought the idea to a team that we knew uh, here in Austin that had been in the structural heart space for for many years, with his basic concept of there's 30 years of surgical literature on mitral repair. And this, sorry for those who are not familiar with Millipede, Millipede's in the mitral space, a transcatheter mitral repair technology. And what Steve wanted to do was to basically design a ring that can reproduce the surgical standard. And rather than trying to do a coronary sinus or other plication stitches, which were not done surgically, let's just try to do what the surgeon does, which is a semi-rigid, complete uh, ring that's placed in the annulus of the, of the mitral valve. And so we, we started with that idea. And we started the company with Steve in 2012. And fortunately, in 2013, Randy Lashinsky Uh, Joined as the CEO, and things really took off after that. And one of the hallmarks of being able to do early stage development, as we talked earlier about, is is the capital profile. And so we developed a a profile, and Randy had a track record, whether it was from Direct Flow or from Coret Medical, of being able to get to first in human uh, on relatively small capital. And so we were able to get a prototype developed on you know about six million dollars that we could get into humans uh we did not have the catheter but what we saw is the key was building this implant and that if you could build the implant then the rest could follow not going to be easy there's a lot tremendous amount of engineering work that has to go in after that but for us where we saw the major value inflection point was building that ring and we felt that we could go after that and so we did and in about 2016 we did our first surgical implant of the uh, ring that would be uh, then later in 2017 uh, implanted by catheter, and that uh, led to the you know the excitement, and then the partnering with Boston Scientific a year ago, and and then the acquisition that happened just uh, earlier this week.
0: So it said that one of the strategies of, of doing early stage investing is to get multiple people at the table, so you have the ability to draw on on different firms for follow on capital. Sante seems comfortable uh, just being the the only one on the, at the table or one of the few at the table, particularly with Millipede. Um, what, uh, where does that sort of uh, confidence come from? Do you think that – that y- where does that conference come from? I guess that's my question because <laughs> others, again, like to spread the risk and they like to make sure that there's others at the table, different points of view, different perspectives, and the feeling that there's a lot of uh, safety in numbers
1: a few thoughts there, Tom first off, most of our deals are syndicated. Millipede is, is one that we were the only institutional investor in uh, and we made a strategic decision that you know that the team was executing flawlessly. We had an opportunity we felt to hit these really important milestones and and fortunately, we were following. Uh, the mitral valve companies that had done six, twelve, twenty patients and had been able to transact, and so we felt that with Millipede, different than many other companies, that but specifically because of the market with Millipede, that there was an opportunity here in the near term to hit a you know value inflection point that could lead to an exit, and so we doubled down and 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 went went along. We had a lot of folks who were interested in joining us, but we really didn't want to disrupt what we felt was a really tight knit syndic- uh, tight knit board, uh, highly focused team. If you look at many of the other deals that we're in, we we, we have syndicated those uh, broadly. Uh, we, we find that early on, if it's the first three to six million in the company, many times it's easier to be the only investor there, uh, especially when when you're taking something from the napkin and you're trying to get it to, to first and human. That sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen you know, can spoil the spoil the cake. Uh, but then but look, many of these companies, TVA Medical is another one that we started uh, with just a napkin idea and a concept of how to tr- change uh, surgical f- dialysis fistulas from surgery to a minimally invasive procedure. And and that was that was a company co-founded by Dr. Billy Cohn from Texas Heart and Adam Berman, who is the CEO. And that was a paper napkin idea that we were the only ins- investor in. Through the Series A, we got the first in human, but then we brought in a syndicate that included S Three Ventures from Austin. It then included uh, multiple strategics who who came into that deal, and we continued that through, and, and that was acquired earlier this year, by I guess now, now technically 2018, uh, by BD Bard. Uh, but there, there's one that we you know that took you know about 50 million in capital, uh, and and therefore needed to be syndicated. But it was the sequencing of syndication. If you take a look at it from just a high-level investment thesis and, and the question of how do you do early stage, our sense is if you do just one off, so I'm just gonna do one deal, that's very risky. But if you have a portfolio a portfolio of these companies that are that that each have a shot of creating value early on so that you can syndicate, so you decrease your syndication risk as you go forward, can have a step up in valuation, can do it on limited dollars. Uh and and that also line up in spaces like structural heart or peripheral vascular, neurovascular, uh EP would be another space, that there are buyers willing to come in if you hit milestones early. That's that's critical, right? If you have to, you know, know from day one that you're gonna have to do 30 to 40 million in revenue, that's a very different deal. But if you know that up front, hey, if we get to 30 or 40 patients and we achieve you know this clinical milestone there is an opportunity to either fundraise at a good step up and put together a great financing syndication or there are several strategics right this is an area that multiple strategics are interested in that they could acquire and so by having a portfolio of that uh, as you know what we're building as a venture firm we don't need you know every single one to sell early but if we don't start early and own a whole bunch of it from the early stages, then you never have an opportunity for millipede, right? Millipede would never happen as the only institutional investor. And it was, uh, you know, about 563, I think the enterprise value, right? That's a, that's a tremendous, you know, tremendous outcome, but it would never have happened if we had syndicated the whole thing and, and uh, you know, had four groups in at, at day one. So it's, it's partly thesis of how we like to work with the entrepreneurs, how we, we see building the companies over the life cycle of them. And then it's honestly by having a portfolio of these companies that allow us to diversify our risk.
0: So, in your eyes, it's riskier to do less early stage. If you're going to do early stage deals like these, then then commit to doing a lot of these. So you've got a lot of uh, different different uh, opportunities for success.
1: Yes, and we also you know, and when we've looked at it and have looked at sort of the quote later stage, while it feels like you know, a company that's early on in the clinic should be lower risk than a company that's on a paper napkin. When we look at the data, we d- we just don't see it. We do not see the risk return profile for a series B coming in at the series B or series C to justify the lower return. Um, those are generally big rounds of financing. These are early stage companies that still have plenty of clinical risk and execution risk, market risk. So while it's, you know, no longer just on the bench and in someone's idea in their head it, it, it when we look at it, just because you've gotten 20 patients done doesn't mean that you are significantly de-risked and so so for us you know we we've, we've, we 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 approach it both from our experience from the data and and we've just come back to saying this is this is the right space for us to be in is is the early stage
0: and just to uh, and you can confirm this data or not but I've got the pitch book uh open and uh, looks like it. The looks like Millipede had raised uh, just over sixteen million dollars prior to Boston putting in ninety million a year ago with the option to acquire, which looks like could ultimately, I think, as you mentioned, end up being over five hundred million dollars. So is that uh, is that accurate? Sixteen million dollars raised by before Boston became involved. Yeah, it was, I, I can say
1: there was less than twenty million. I think PitchBook's pretty accurate about less than twenty million that had been yeah. invested, in. and then yeah, you know, Boston came in with a structured offer with a ninety. Uh, and then we, you know, they uh, closed on the 325, the actual acquisition, uh, just this
0: this week. That's an insane return. That's pretty. That's pretty great. Thank you. Are you evaluating the the idea on the napkin, or are you really looking at at the the person who's drawing on the napkin? I know the answer is going to be both, but th- this is a giant leap of faith to make a, an early stage investment like this. How, how do you know, sort of, that you're you're betting on the right either the right horse, or are you actually just betting on the jockey?
1: it's got to be the right race. Okay. I mean, that's the horse. It's got to be the right race to run to begin with. And you then need to, to, to assemble the right team. And, you know, the interesting thing is if you take a look at the early IP for millipede, and then what the actual design was, the, 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 there's not a lot, it, it, it's mitral, it's mitral repair, but, but what what the te- what we needed was you know the the combination of you know the thought leader of Steve Bowling and the engineering brilliance of Randy and the team that he brought together and then they needed time and be- and because their burn rate was so low early on it allowed us to spend a couple of years iterating and and so in our thesis is is if we get to you know 2 to 3 million into the company or 4 we tranche But if we're two to three million into the company and it's not working, we haven't been able to take that idea from the napkin and translate it into at least a prototype into humans that is at least showing us that we're onto something, then we're not afraid to shut it down at that point. That's to us. That's where the real value creation happens. There's tremendous work that has to take place afterwards. But it's that it's that from the concept napkin to the first in human where huge opportunities Take place, and if that can be if that can be done on you know a few million dollars, that's a that's a deal we'd be interested in. If it's a deal that says, "Look, we're going to need twenty million dollars before we have any idea whether this works," well, you know that may be a great opportunity for you know great investment, a great company. It's not one that we would do.
0: Mm, interesting. And I was going to suggest that uh, you're benefiting from being in Texas, but, but uh, Millipede is based in, in Santa Rosa, California, or at least that's where it had its primary office. Uh, so you're not just uh, sort of uh, enjoying uh, having a, a, a pick of all the, the great research that's going on in, in Houston and, and other areas, or is that, is that part of your success?
1: So, Tom, we, we look at technology from across the country and evaluate it. And if it's early on, you know, there are examples where it comes with a management team and that generally will then you know indicate where it's going to be located uh but many of these early stage ideas is you know where you have a founder who's a clinician uh and they're not going to move or you know and then we look we look across the country where is the where's the greatest uh location of talent who who do we know who do we trust who do we want to work with and then we'll 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 put the company in that location and so you know for millipede uh you know Originated with Steve Bowling at the University of Michigan. We got introduced to it here in Austin because of one of the teams out of CarbaMedics, the old uh, stru- uh, surgical heart valve company that had worked with Steve for many years. We considered putting it in Ann Arbor. We considered putting it in Austin, but when we looked across the country and identified Randy as and his team that he was going to put together, it made sense to put this in Santa Rosa, where there is a wealth of catheter and structural heart expertise you know right there and so so we do that for all the companies to find out where we think the the best location can be and and take
0: advantage of that let's just talk a bit about uh more broadly first how much is uh does sante have to invest in its uh when was its current fund when did you close on it Uh, was it the the one in 2015 or was there a more recent one and how much uh dry powder do you have left
1: so we're in, in the later stages of closing fund three so i can't i can't Technically, comment fully on Fund Three, but I can say we have a 200 target that, and a 250 hard cap, and we are very encouraged by the response we've had from the LP community. And look to have that closed, uh, do a final close probably by the end of the quarter, and uh, we're actively investing. So we've got two uh, two deals that we've already done in the fund, and a third deal that's in short short final.
0: And let's talk. Just about med tech. Uh, what are those races that you're looking at? Clearly, um, the, the heart is one area where you're, you're having great success. But what are some other areas in healthcare that folks are listening to this uh, this podcast? They might get excited to hear that they're uh, in an area that you're interested in. So cardiology,
1: as we, we talk, right? Structural heart, I still think there's opportunities there. Uh, we haven't solved all the problems, whether that's next generation left atrial appendage, whether it's transeptal valve or repair technologies, I still think there's room there, portal replacement, perhaps. Uh, on the other areas in cardiology, heart failure. Uh that's a you know, there's been a lot of money that's gone into the devices to treat heart failure, whether that's the atrial shunts that we've seen recently raise large amounts to do randomized clinical trials. But there's others. There's de denova- denovation therapies, there's neuromodulation therapies for heart failure. That's one that I think everybody's really excited about. They've so far taken a tremendous amount of capital to to develop, but I'm bullish that we're, you know, in the next few years, we're going to see sort of a waterfall effect of, uh, you know, that all this investment is really going to start to pay off in that space. And that'll also create opportunities for fast followers uh, to step in, I think, Uh, staying in cardiology, electrophysiology, the EP space remains hot. I mean we've seen APAMA, Criterion, EPD, and now Epic all go out in the last, what is that, 18, 24 months at relatively, you know, early stages uh, for the, the broader medtech community. And so EP is an area that I think still has tremendous amount of potential because the clinical results today are not are not great, right? The, the cutting edge cutting edge medical or device therapies Still have tremendous amount of room to improve. Uh, I think other areas outside of cardiovascular, would, you, you can still see some stuff in peripheral vascular. I think peripheral vascular, especially if it's dealing with oncology, so drug delivery, we're seeing that. Uh, we saw Boston and BTG. I mean, that brings together a pretty powerful uh, IR for oncology platform. We have seen areas in neurovascular, whether Narabi recently. I think that's about two years ago now. But you know I still think stroke is an area that you know, both as an emergency physician, I care tremendously about, uh, but I think also from a area of rapid growth, absolute you know clinical need for continued improvement technologically, as well as then you know the, how you manage patients through it, how you involve EMS, uh, how you determine whether it's large vessel or ischemic or hemorrhagic, it, there's a lot of opportunities there in stroke and and multiple buyers that could go after it neuromods uh neuromods interesting and then i think some of these broader disease management that have been traditionally medical management uh are going to be really interesting i think they're they're challenging plays because they're they're new white spaces of of can you can you do it i mean already and obviously in the whole hi- hypertension space was was you know today ahead of its time perhaps, but I think that it's it's I mean with the data that's come out of there and then recore and some of these others that are raising funds, it's really I mean I think it's got a real place uh, in um, clinical world and I think we're going to see more of that therapies for diabetes uh, that's a you know talk about a space that has tremendous need. Uh, we've got uh, some of the ENT spaces, so there's there's several areas that have got these really large unmet clinical needs where this where the current standard of care is is suboptimal. And and that's those are the exciting areas that I think innovative, you know teams can come in and tackle. If it's if it's a space like, you know, take coronary stents, right? I mean, those are phenomenally good. And you know, we just saw we saw the bioabsorbables really not being able to displace drug eluding. You know, there's not much room there for a For incremental improvement, I think Boston and Metronic and those those teams are brilliant in that area and they're going to incrementally improve better than anybody out there. But in areas where it really takes creative ideas, thinking outside the box to really try to solve some of these problems, that's where the entrepreneur can really makes a difference. And and that's an area that is that is where where I like to focus.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's circle back to the, uh, the the panel you'll be on at the MedTech conference, which is happening on May twenty uh, ninth and thirtieth. The, the, this panel will be on the thirtieth. Uh, launching companies in the current environment. Last question: What is uh, what is your assessment of of this current environment for startups? You sound excited about starting companies. You, you 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 sound like you have a lot of enthusiasm. So, do you feel good about the opportunity to start MedTech companies today? I do, Tom.
1: I'm 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 bullish that in you know in carefully chosen spaces with the right team and the right technology and the right capital plan that you can really make a difference. Uh, You know, I put the caveat that I, you know, I transitioned right to, to med tech during the crisis. So mm-hmm. I don't, right. I don't, I don't remember a day that it was easy to fundraise for mental. <laughs> you know, I don't you have any of the glory closer. days, right? <laughs> so, like to me, to me, you know, thinking that you had a, you got to fight for it. That there's few, you know, few syndications. The like consolidators are, you know, consuming each other. So there's fewer consolidators. To me, that is the stand. You know, to me, that's all I've known, and mm-hmm. so. You know, I, I have to always be careful that you know. Yeah, I think doing med tech compared to biotech is really tough. Uh, I just don't know anything else, any, any, anything else, and and this is what I love to do. So, uh, you know, we're going to continue doing it.
0: Great. Well, it's great to have you uh, on the on at the conference and and on the podcast. Uh, it's a great story, and it's and it is nice to uh, to hear firms doing well, doing early stage investing, and I'm sure a lot of people will find this uh, this conversation very uh, uplifting. So, appreciate the time, James. Thank you, Tom. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. It's great to have you as part of these conversations. Please tell your colleagues and friends about this podcast. Please, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, do so. That way you'll get future interviews sent directly to you. I may be sending some, uh, some bonus episodes in the coming weeks because I'm doing a, a number of great interviews and I'd like to share these uh, discussions sooner rather than later. Also, uh, go to medtechconference.com to check out the agenda for the May 29th and May 30th meeting. This is going to be a terrific meeting. Leslie Tray and Kirk Nielsen are really putting together a stellar day. We already have Kevin Lobo of Stryker confirmed. We have Ashley McAvoy of Johnson Johnson confirmed. Many other great medtech leaders as well. So go to medtechconference.com, check out the agenda for yourself. And of course, register to attend. You can use the medtechtalk code. Save yourself a couple hundred dollars, and we would love to see you in Minneapolis.